0: Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. everyone. This is Rohit from Mastery and I'm excited to have Anna Lorena Fabrega, uh, who's a chief evangelist at Synthesis, uh, an online enrichment club where kids learn through games and simulations. Um, and she's also the author of the new book, The Learning Game. A thanks to uh, Paulina for the introduction. Welcome to the show, Anna.
1: Thank you so much, Rohit. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Awesome. So, you know, uh, you, you've been, uh, I've been trying to, you know, and, and get hold of you. You've been pretty Uh, pretty pretty big on um uh, on on deck and i I think the first time i got to hear about you for was from david peril i was a big fan of uh still i'm a big fan of of his writing but you know how did you get your start in teaching
1: yeah so um i started teaching when i was well i just so i i guess I'll, i'll go back a little bit so when i was growing up um i was born in panama but i got to travel a lot and i lived in seven different countries Oh. Um, well you know, while I was growing up because of my dad's job. So by the time that I was fourteen, I had attended ten different schools in seven different countries. And so looking back, that's sort of this what sparked this whole interest in education. Of course, I didn't know at the time, but um but it definitely influenced um my love for learning, not necessarily because I was loving learning inside all these schools but um, mainly because what what I was doing outside of school. My mom was amazing. Um, And so she really sparked that love for learning for me. And so that's where my learning journey um, started. And then as I became a little bit older, I did an internship in my dad's um, educational company at the time in Panama. Um, And that's when I first got to work with kids. And I realized how exciting it was. Um, I selfishly wanted to do that because I got to learn a lot from them, not just me teaching them. And I just found them fascinating and the fact that you could um, be part of the education of a new generation—that um, was something that really called my attention, and I thought it was worth my time. And so I decided to study education. So I did the traditional route. I went to NYU. Um, I, I did a—you know—I had my teaching degree. I studied education, childhood education, special education, and psychology. And then I got to student teach um, at different placements in New York. And that's when I started to notice that um, that there was not really Um, A lot of teaching and learning going on in the schools, even though kids are there for so many hours a day, so many days a week for 12 plus years. And so it started to really dawn on me um, that the kids were and this I talk about in my book, playing something that I call the game of school where they learn the shortcuts and they pick up on what they need to do in order to appear as if they're learning and so that they can pass on to the next grade and to the next grade and sort of go through the motions. But there wasn't that like spark um, for learning and that curiosity and the desire to, you know, do things just for the sake of it. it. It seemed very scripted because it is. And so I started to sort of lose that desire to work at a school setting, but I wasn't sure what to do or where to look. Or what were my other alternatives, right? I knew I wanted to work with kids, but uh, but not in the school system. I just didn't know where to look. So I went ahead and had my classroom and I taught in New York, in Panama, and in Boston for a few years. Um, and that really, you know, even though I tried to do th- things differently in my classroom, um, it's really difficult to um, focus on the things that I thought were worth my kids time um, and the things that we actually going to prepare them for the real world. And what I was seeing that successful people were doing, it did not really match what w- what I was doing in the classroom with my students. And so after a few years, um, I made the hard decision to leave the classroom again, not because I didn't want to work with kids, but just because I it didn't feel right. And so I started to look at what were my alternatives. And so I turned to the Internet. And I started, um, I activated my Twitter account. I started sort of like doing the research and seeing what were some alternative learning experiences out there. And I came across David Perel and his work. And he was talking about how um, teachers were going to be millionaires one day teaching online. And I was like, "Ooh, this sounds interesting. And so um, I saw that he was teaching a writing course. And I never considered myself a writer, which is funny because now I have a book coming out. Um, but I was like, you know, maybe this is this makes sense for me. Now I have all these ideas about, you know, what education should 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 be. And I have all these questions that I want to explore. I think that writing. Um, sounds like the right place to start. And so I took his course and I it was the first time that I that I was taking an online um, synchronous um, course. And so I saw the power of really working with people from all over the world. And we all came from different fields, but we had like things in common. We were all sort of like seeking to find what we wanted to do next through writing. And so that really introduced me to a bunch of people that I would have never met otherwise. Um, and people that were working on things that I found really interesting. Um, And so I joined this group called, these guys that were working on something called synthesis, and we can talk about that in a bit. Um, And so, but again, all this came from, you know, me building sort of like my ideas around education through this writing course, sharing them with the world, and then attracting like-minded people, Um, and then I ended up joining this startup. And so what I've been doing for the past years is just sharing my thoughts on alternative education, providing hopefully some alternatives for parents who are concerned about the current situation in school for their kids and looking for alternatives or at least ways to complement their kids' education, And um, I started a newsletter as part of David's course, like almost three years ago now. And then I was very consistent. I wrote it every Friday or almost every Friday. Um, And eventually, you know, I think it was a year ago, publishers started to reach out asking me if I wanted to write a book. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, again, I never considered myself a writer never in my wildest dreams that I think I was going to publish a book. But I was like, you know, I've been publishing consistently for the past three years I guess I can find a way to turn some of that into a book. Um, and so I was pregnant at the time. So that was a big challenge, but I, I managed to do it. I had support from everyone, a lot of people. And so, yeah, a year later, it it it, it turned into a reality. The book's coming out September 5th. And so that's sort of like the long ended <laughs> answer to who I am, what I've been doing um, and sort of what I'm working on.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. That's it's it's wonderful to know. And you talked about David Perel. you know, I've been following his journey. I I lost some of his articles. Um I, I know, you know, uh, we should have a different podcast on it, but but w- what do you think makes great writing? You know, uh, I've been I've been trying to write on Twitter. I'm I'm am I'm a fan of Dickie Bush as well, but 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 something you know, any advice for listeners who want to write a well or write better, yeah, you, know, you know, you focus on a single niche. Uh, And and you're known for for education and learning, but what advice would you give to podcast listeners who want to write better?
1: Yeah, so the first thing is to try to unlearn everything they taught you about writing in school. (laughs) Um, That was the biggest thing for me, especially because I was a teacher that would teach kids writing. And so, you know, that was like my biggest barrier, this whole notion that, you know, you have to write a certain amount of words and use all this robust language and big SAT words and then, you know, make it long and make it, you know, minimum. all that is BS and we live in a world that's completely different people rarely, you know, read emails that are longer than a paragraph, you want to be succinct you want to go to the point you want to be as clear as possible so when I learned that I you know what I what you need to do is just write as if you were writing for a 10 year old, like if a 10 year old can understand what you're saying, then you're good to go. And Mm -hmm. again, this doesn't mean you're going to make it like, like shallow writing, it just means the simpler, the better people want to understand what you're saying. And you can give examples and you can give stories and you can do it all but but just do it, you know, short sentences, simple, think of a rhythm, think of a story. And so that's one thing. Um, and that that was very big for me. The other thing is, you don't have to start from a blank page, which again, is something that that's how most people do it. Like if you think about how I wrote my book, I did not just sit down and start writing a book from scratch. Like I actually went back to all the things that I had written about. And if you're someone who hasn't written anything yet, you have ideas. And so start capturing those ideas, whether it is on your phone or notes. Um, but anything that you're passionate about or interested on, you start capturing those ideas. You write, you know, you can talk about it on your phone, record yourself, or you write notes, or if you have a notebook or however it is. And then it's gonna get to a point where you 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 leave those ideas marinate or you compile more thoughts. You become sort of an expert on whatever it is that you're interested in. And then you get to write about it when you, you're you writing from abundance, not from scar- scarcity, which is something, again, that for me was a big revelation when it came to writing. The other thing is, um, it's writing will always be really challenging and really hard um, because, you know, in order to write well, you you need to be thinking clearly, right? And so um, it's always going to be challenging. So you need to know that and and plan around that. So have a support system of people that are going to keep you accountable. Um, For me, it was very important having that deadline. Like in David's course, they make you publish something every single week and send it out on a newsletter you know, and at the beginning, it was my mom and my dad subscribed. So I was like, whatever, I'll just write whatever. But eventually, people started to subscribe. And so I was no longer writing to mom and dad. And so I I really tried to make sure that it was high quality. But at the same time, you can't focus on perfectionism, because you have only a week, right? And you need to send and and the importance of shipping your work and putting it out there to get criticized and to get that feedback that's going to make you writing even better. So you sort of have to lose that fear of looking like a fool and just know that, you know, you're never going to put something out there that's perfect. And that's, you know, ready. Like every time I send something, I never feel like it's ready. Even with the book, I had a deadline and I think I finished like the day before the deadline. Um, and it never feels ready, but it's, you, you know, you get it to the place where you're, you know, it, it's good enough. And right. so, um, those were a few things like having that support system, letting go of that, you know, feeling of looking like a fool and embracing it shipping your work um and then going just for simple you know straightforward english or whatever language you're using but um, make sure that a 10 year old can understand what you're saying so i guess those would be like the hot you know the big things for me
0: yeah no absolutely i think i think that is great advice just keep it simple and, and keep publishing and that's what i'm trying to do i'm trying to write uh, a 200 word uh, you know short essay every every day and putting on twitter not getting too much of traction but i'm but i'm keeping at it um but, but i, w- I want to talk about educational systems so you know what, what do you think are some of the shortcomings of tra- traditional education systems you you started in panama as well as in us um you know, you know what, what are the shortcomings and uh, what what is something you know which can be done to uh, to improve
1: yeah well how much time do you have cuz <laughs> <If> we could <laughs> you know the entire hour talking about this but i'm going to try to think of the biggest ones so one of the biggest ones for me is this idea of grouping kids by age um that's the standard practice or at least it's been for the past you know 100 years but if you actually go back 200 years ago you know before we started with this whole idea of an education system kids were actually grouped um it was like mixed age groups learning from each other, teaching each other. So you had kids from different ages. The problem that we have now is that we group kids by age. um, And well, the first thing is when in the real world, do you only interact with people your age? Mm -hmm. I can't think of one scenario, you know, other than school where you're grouped with people only your age, right? So that doesn't quite make sense in terms of like, you know, transferring that to the real world, but also um, kids all have different capabilities. They learn at different speeds. And when you group them by age, you're putting a speed limit. You're saying, you know, you can learn up to here. And then, you know, you even if you can't do more, and we're going to leave that for fourth grade. You know, you need to first finish up to here. To, but what if the kid, what would happen if we removed that speed limit, right? If we just let them go and see where until where they can go. Um, I've seen how this works because I've seen schools that do mixed age groups and at synthesis, we do mixed age groups, and it's just, you know, incredible. It's incredible how, you know, an eight-year-old can surprise you with the things that they are able to achieve when you don't stop them. It's also incredible because the older kids want to teach the younger kids. And one of the best ways to learn something is to teach it. Mm. And so when you see the kids teaching the younger kids, they're crystallizing their learning. And so that's the kind of learning that lasts even after the test, you know, um, they don't forget. And so you also have the younger kids that want to model the older kids. And again, they have something to aspire to, right? They they see the kids doing this hard you know solving this hard problem they want to give it a try and again most of the time they're able to do it the thing is they don't have that chance in school and so it really removes the teacher from the equation which is something that you want to do becomes way more student-centered and so that's one of the you know one of the biggest things that i would say the 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 age segregation in school then um a, a very obvious one is this one size fits all curriculum again kids learn at different paces and you know they're interested in different things so this idea that we have to teach first subjects in isolation which right. to me is Right, because our brain is interconnected and we actually learn when we can put different things in context and see the connections and the synthesis between different things. And so that's, you know, this idea of like for 45 minutes, we're going to be doing math. Then you need to like shut down your brain and we're going to switch to science. So now we need to focus on like that doesn't that doesn't make sense. Um. So but not only that, also. Kids. um it's a lot easier for you to learn something when you're interested in it. So the fact that we have this like standard, you know, like curriculums that say, we're not going to learn about this. We're then going to learn about that. If the kid is not interested, you know, at the moment on the French Revolution, they're very likely not going to learn about it or they're going to learn to pass the test, and then they're going to forget. So what's the whole point in it? So, a much better way would be to actually start where the kids are already interested, you know, like tap into their interests, see what they want to learn about, what they need at the moment, right? and then begin there. Obviously, this is very challenging to do when you're in a school system and you have thirty kids, they don't have different interests, and you have to sort of get going. So I understand why it is the way it is, but that's one of the big critiques as well. um then this whole notion that, um, the teacher like the teachers and the administrators and the people creating the curriculums are actually the ones doing all the problem solving and the thinking um, and all the creative thinking well students are merely following textbook problems and instructions and, you know, problems that have very clear cut answers. So there's not a lot of real deep thinking going on. So kids are not really learning how to think and how to come up with answers and figure things out, but rather they're learning how to follow instructions and how to, um, you know, learn about things that have already been created in the same way that everyone else is, is learning about them. There's very little Room for interpretation and for you know asking questions and 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 sort of like going against the grain um, and so and and to solve actually problems that that have like different answers and different ways to get into an answer so it's very like clear cut and again the real world is nothing like that and not only is it not you know again transferable to the real world but kids are very bored <laughs> you know that's a huge problem in school kids are just like they're just not challenged um and and we think that we're challenging them by giving them like but but not really i mean like authentic challenges that they want to be part of that they want to solve that they understand why they're working on something or why they're learning something um there's a lot of 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 that missing and so um so those are three again i can keep going i don't know if you <laughs> want to I'm curious. What was one of the big things for you, um, growing up, like going to school, um, that 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 you find now that it was, you know, a big challenge? And then we can talk about that as well.
0: Yeah, I think th- I think uh, the the biggest challenge was um, starting with with people my age, and you know, uh, and and focusing on on one subject and then moving on to another subject. And uh, and and you know, I come from India, and in, in in the Asian countries, you know, you you really need to learn everything. Um, and memorize it uh, maybe i i mean Indians uh, or asians can be great in spelling contest or maybe uh, here know maths and science where you have to uh, learn by memorization but but that was that was a big challenge for me i didn't find it inspiring at all in fact i, w- I went to the b school and i had to you know write 2000 words of uh, articles and all that, but uh, but i think that was that was a I found a bit of a shortcoming um but uh, but uh, you know du- during COVID we had uh, I had somebody on the podcast and he was running a micro school. Do you think COVID changed the way students uh, the you know, are, ta- are taught at school? I I read somewhere on Twitter that the the scores for you know for maths and science and some some of the subjects have really gone down. Do you think it has impacted students? Uh, where they have not gone to you know school um, not have to have those face-to-face interaction or do you think you know code was a great way for students um uh, to learn uh, in you know in smaller settings on smaller ports
1: wow so so there's a lot to unpack here right um so there, several things happened during COVID. so one of them is that um it exp like COVID exposed what was going on in the classroom and what kids are learning in a way that parents had like a, a, you know, front row view of it, right, because everyone was home and parents could actually hear and see what their kids were learning and what they were talking about. So a few things happened. A lot of parents became alarmed. When they started to realize, wait, this is what my kid is learning about. Like this, you know, I and and a lot of people that I spoke to were like, oh my God, this is not going to prepare my kids for the real world. I cannot, and they had no idea. They had no idea what was going on in school. So it actually opened the eyes for many parents to see what was going on. Um, I, I think it, it it was catastrophic for for many kids because what a lot of schools did, and again, I'm not, I'm not criticizing because this was very last minute they they were trying the best they could but what they did was they grabbed they what they were already doing in person this traditional way of teaching and learning and and they just put it online so you know they didn't quite have time to like rethink and 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 sort of because online education works when you when you organize and you structure it and you create it within an online audience in mind, right? But that's not what happened with COVID. With COVID, they just grabbed what they were doing in the traditional classroom and they put it online. So if kids were not paying attention and were not interested and were not learning in the school setting, imagine now doing that exact same thing, but in front of a screen the entire day, you don't even have your peers around, you can't quite have that connection with your teacher. Um, you have all the stress from COVID. So, oh my gosh, like if they were not learning in in, in the brick or mortar setting, like here was even worse. And so mm-hmm. uh, that that um and and you know, the social isolation and and the lack of you know interactions like that was all very, very harmful for kids, um, or, you know, in general. However, It also inspired a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of people working in the alternative education space to accelerate whatever it is that they were working on and put it out into the world because people needed options so a lot of parents got a taste of what alternative education looks like what are the options they tried. Some good online classes that were actually built for that they tried the concept of micro schools or learning pods, which I find fascinating, um, which for those that you know are listening and don't know it's when you grab like eight to you know, nine students and you or it can be a little bit more a little bit less, and you cater a curriculum for them and they get together at a home at a church, you know, at a space, and they get to like work through projects and do like, you know, re- learning for a few hours a day I find that great I find that fascinating so it did. Um, like micro schools gained a lot of popularity. And it's great because like even after COVID, they they, they stuck around and a lot more people know about them. So that's great. Um, And so in the sense of alternative education options, um, I think that it did bring awareness to a lot of people that did not know. Um, And now with the whole like school choice, like people are actually starting to turn to alternative education options, which is great. So that was sort of the positive side of COVID. But again, the negative side, which I talked about at the beginning i think i think it was it was very detrimental
0: right, right. and and do you think uh, you know kids are more engaged with with video and audio and you know sh- should they be playing video games i think uh, the kind of revenues which video games make is is i've heard is more than what uh, the movies make but but should kids really be playing video games
1: um so again this is a very interesting question and something that i've been exploring for the past um years and it's a controversial question so um I mean, if your kid is not interested in video games, then I'm not saying go ahead and and introduce them to them and then push them to play. Like, no, that's not what I'm saying. Like, you know, you should just let your kid do whatever it is they're interested in. But there are a lot of kids that play video games and there's this whole stigma around it. But when you actually um, stop and look at what kids are doing, there's a lot of interesting things, especially when it comes to learning that's happening with video games. So first, um, video games teach kids to teach themselves new skills. So that in in itself is fascinating, right? Because kids are learning how to teach themselves. And this is something that transfers to real life. So they learn that they can basically teach themselves anything. A lot of kids don't get, you know, develop this skill in school. And so that's one thing. The other thing that I find fascinating is um, I'm a big believer that kids have to practice and be exposed to failure in a positive setting when they are young Um, even if they don't want to be entrepreneurs like everyone needs space practicing how to fail how to pick yourself up what to do about it how to manage those feelings because you you're going to fail a lot during your life and when you're a kid those failures are low stakes, right? Like you don't have, you know, a, a marriage on the line or a big house to support or a big business. Like that, when you're little, that's the moment for you to practice failing um, and 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 practice it over and over again until you, you become comfortable with it and you know how to avoid big failures so that when you become an adult and then you have, you know, high stakes kind of failures, you can avoid those, right? Or at least know how to manage when you do have failures. So video games are a great way to practice failure in a positive light. So if you see kids playing, they can fail a thousand times and they're like, oh, bummer, okay, here I go again. I I will, you know, this time I I know what to do when I fall here, or they pick up on, on what they need to do to get better. They are learning and they are, you know, going through this cycle and they're not discouraged when they fail. If you look at what happens when kids fail in school, it's very different right they get marked with a bad grade that goes in the report card that's there for the long term they get in trouble blah 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 it's like all this like big pressure that we put so kids obviously are not going to venture out and try things because they know that it comes with a cost and so they're not practicing failing and so they're scared to fail and to me this is one of the most detrimental things that the school does right because kids are going out into the real world and they have no idea how to fail and they have no idea what to do when they fail so anyway video games give them practice with this and again in a positive light the other thing is um I was talking about how one of the, you know, one of the things that I dislike from school is how the, everything's scripted and everything comes with instructions and kids learn to not trust themselves. They're like, I need instructions in order to operate. I need somebody telling me what to do all the time so that I know what to do, right? And in the real world, it's like, no, you need to figure things out for yourself, you know? And so video games incentivize you to figure, you don't have somebody telling you what to do. No, kids have to try it. They don't know what's going on. They fail and then they understand and then they, and they figure it out and so it gives them that confidence oh you know what i don't know what to do here but i can learn how to figure it out you know and so that's a very important skill and so that's something else that i find fascinating and then of course there's the other topic which is um and i write about this in my book which is kids need and adults we all need um autonomy you know to feel like control of something. We all need to feel competent, that we're good at something, and we all need to feel this relatedness and this connection to other human beings. So we need these three things in order to thrive. And so if you look at the life of a kid, um, especially those that go to traditional school, that, you know, everything's becoming more rigid, they often don't get this sense of autonomy in school, right? They have very little choices over the subjects that they learn, how they learn them, how they can show what they learn, um, or, or anything, right? And so they're craving this autonomy that they're not getting in school. And sometimes they don't get it at home either. They're also never feeling this feeling of competence, right? Because. Again, everything is, you know, could he caught this certain way? And if you are the kind of student that you, you know, you're very smart, but you don't know how to showcase your learning in the way that they're assessing you in school, it's very easy for you to feel like a failure, like you are dumb, like you don't know because you didn't pass the test, but really you're very smart. You're just not being assessed in the way that you, you know, you you show your real skills. And so many kids are not experiencing competence in school. And then that sense of relatedness where, you know, many parents send their kids to school thinking that, they're gonna be socializing and being with other friends and developing their social skills. But really kids have to be quiet, sitting down, listening to the teacher. Then they quickly have to go from one class to the other. They have to be quiet in the hallway, quiet in the bathroom, short, you know, recess is very short anyway. um, So a lot of kids don't feel like they can connect with other kids. And so many kids are not experiencing this very fundamental three things, autonomy, competency, and relatedness. When they go home and they start playing video games, for example, this is the perfect place for them to feel autonomy. They get to choose what they want to play, the character, how they're going to dress them, who they want to play with. They have a bunch of choices, right? They, so they 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 they're they're satisfying this craving that they're not getting in the real world. Then they get to feel competence because again, they fail, but they go again until they finally succeed and they feel great, you know, they feel amazing that they that they're good at something. So they are like, okay, they're feeling that Again, competence, and then they can, the relatedness, a lot of these games are social. So they get to play with kids from all over the world that maybe they have you know more interests in common than the kids that you have in your school. And so they're feeling this relatedness. This is very common. And so many parents are like, why is my kid addicted to video games? They're not really addicted to video games. They are just getting those three fundamental things that we all need in order to be happy, successful, thriving adults and, and humans. From video games, not from the real world, and so I just wanted to talk about that because it's a big confusion. Many parents are like, "It's it's it's addiction," but but I, I invite them to stop and sort of like, you know, it's it's a very psychological thing, and look behind and see why your kid is playing. What is your kid getting from playing these video games that they're not getting in the real world? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's just a very interesting thing that comes up a lot when I talk to parents about video games.
0: Interesting, and and. Uh... And what should be done to encourage kids to think for themselves? Uh, and, you know, it's, is it like like a certain age where, you know, uh, parents should encourage their children to think for themselves?
1: No, I actually think, you know, I have an eight-month-old at home. Um, and and I think you can start at that age, you know, the, the sooner, the better. Nice. And so, and this is very, you know, it's a very intuitive thing, right? It's, it's a, a lot in, in school. Kids rarely have the chance to question things. And I think that a, a very big component of thinking for yourself is having the ability to question everything, you know, so that you can form your own conclusions about whatever it is that you're listening or, or learning or and, but how are you going to do that if you don't have the chance to do that at school In school, you know, and I was a teacher so I, I I can sort of like see both sides of it when you have 30 students and then you're teaching something and you have to move on and then there's a student that's like no I disagree like that's wrong like why, and this and that it's it's you know it takes time and it slows down the class and so many teachers get frustrated. Um, however. This is the kind of um, and 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 again, we, we sort of like label these kids as the troublemakers. Oh, they're questioning everything. And so we teach them, you know, no, you don't question authority. Right. And again, you don't and not only in the classroom, but also in the outside world. But it's like, no, we should be teaching them the opposite. We should be saying, no, you 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 do get to be skeptical. You do get to question things. Of course, you do it with respect. And of course, you need you need to teach them how to do it. You know, you're not going to be rude about it, but they should have the chance to question things. And that comes from home. So when your kid comes up with you know uh, you know learn something you can you can ask them questions like well are you sure about that like what would be you know you know what what would be a critic about that that opinion like let's play devil's advocate and so there's certain dynamics and i have a whole chapter about this in my book where i share strategies that parents can do and the kinds of questions that you can ask kids to get them to sort of like think through whatever conclusions they're making or, you know, when they think something certain and, and just to get them to sort of like go back and forth and play both sides of whatever it is that they're learning or talking about. Um, also helping them like detect biases, not only like their own biases, but also people's biases and understand that, you know, people are biased, right. And so, um, and going deeper and, and, letting them you know whenever they ask you a question we are very inclined to just give them the answer but it's like no you you know encourage them to go ahead and 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 look them up for themselves you teach them how you say you know look in three different sources and if you don't get it then i'll help you find it and so but also like getting them to do the hard work is one of them and again it's very intuitive it's very simple it's just a matter of changing that chip that we have Um, but then also this idea that and i talked about it a little bit at the beginning I've noticed that, and and we see this at Synthesis a lot, like kids crave challenges and they want to learn about adult conversations and they don't want to be talked down to. And and so um it's a matter of uh, you know even though they're young sort of forgetting their age but you can you can talk to them about like real issues obviously you find the way to do it but you can expose them to real issues and show them that you know there are problems in the world but they can affect those problems there's there's things that they can do about it and so empowering them to know that 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 they're not too young to have certain opinions and ideas and to do things about you know and and to solve problems and so those are a few things and this whole notion of again instructions very against that <laughs> of course you need you know to learn how to follow instructions for certain things but but really removing the instructions and let letting them figure things out like in general um and so yeah those are just like a few things that come to mind of how you can sort of foster this idea of helping kids to think for themselves and not just follow the crowd
0: Right, right, interesting, and and you talked about synthesis school, you know. Um, um So you were a chief evangelist, a tele- chief evangelist over there. Uh, so was Guy Kawasaki at Apple, who was, came on the pod. But, uh, but uh, how did you get your start with synthesis school? Obviously, it's it's. Uh, this, uh, I I think if I'm not wrong, Elon Musk was involved in synthesis school. What was what was the you know the thesis behind that school?
1: Yeah. So. Um, Elon Musk, like many of us, um, realized that school wasn't quite um, teaching his kids and preparing them for the real world the way that 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 he thought should be done. Um, And the kids were not interested and, you know, all the things that we've talked about. And he was like, no, like I like what can we do about it? So he hired um, back in 2014. The best teacher at his school where he had his kids. His name is Josh Dawn. And I agree with him. i he's Josh is amazing. Um, and he was like, Hey, come to SpaceX and I want you to create a school from zero from scratch. And I want you to rethink, you know, education from first principles, like forget about, you know, curriculum, age groups, like I don't want grades, I don't want any of that. I want it to be problem focused and I want it to be mixed age, and I want for my kids to learn how to think and how to solve problems for themselves. And so um, Josh created this school. And, um, and it was incredible. It was a lab school, a lot of people around the world would come visit and sort of see, you know, a lot of people in the education world, what it is that they were doing, that, that they could bring back to their schools and that. And there was one particular class called synthesis, um, that it was simulations um, that Josh would create in person. Um, with real problems that kids had to solve in teams and compete against each other and so the kids were developing a lot of soft skills that are crucial to the real world and so for example like how to build a tesla supercharger like if you were to move the spacex campus to texas like what would be the pros what would be the cons how would you do this like real real things and then the kids had to sort of like you know sometimes it would take days or weeks to come up with the answer there were a bunch of conundrums and so there was a lot of um like like real learning going on. And so um, one of the guys that went to visit his name is Chrisman Frank, he was working at another educational consultant, like an education company at the time. And he was like, this is incredible. I cannot believe that only this 48 kids have access to synthesis and to Ad Astra, which was the name of the school. There has to be a way to put this online. And so he spoke to Josh, and it was right into the pandemic, like when the pandemic hit, And so they grabbed synthesis, which was their most popular class, and they put it into software. And so the simulations, instead of being in person, they were now on software. And so you had kids from all over the world joining the sessions and thinking together to solve these problems. And it was mixed age groups. And so they invited me to join one of the beta testing sessions. So Chris Frank, who's the CEO of Synthesis, um, he had been following my newsletter and and sort of my Twitter account. And he liked the way that I spoke about alternative education. And he was like, this girl would like what we're doing. And he was right. I was blown away. A lot of the things that I talk about of what the future of education should look like or would look like in my mind is exactly what they were thinking about. And again, they were getting started, but their vision was very solid and very aligned with mine. And so I was just fascinated by the fact that the kids were at the edge of their seats um, the language that they were using, you know, the empowerment that they felt as they were solving these problems. And I'm talking about eight-year-olds, like from eight to 14, like you couldn't really tell who was who, like who were the older kids, who were the younger. They were just taking full on control over their learning and they were learning about all sorts of stuff we did not give them you know instructions the kids were failing and their attitudes towards failing were like oh whatever let's keep going i'm going to figure this out and a lot of things that i did not see in the classroom and a lot of excitement and hunger for learning and so i was just blown away and so i joined them um, to sort of like share what, what they were doing with the rest of the world and help them build their vision. And so that was um, almost three years ago now. And um, now this year we launched, so we had like all this team simulations with kids from all over the plane, uh, globe that would join and play this different um, simulations where they would learn mental models and how to extrapolate this to the real world. But now what we're doing is we launched a digital tutor called the Synthesis Tutor this year. Um, And it's just revolutionary because what it does is it teaches and we we plan to teach every core subject, like all the the STEM subjects. Um, We started with math and you can actually try it out for free, a a demo online if you go to synthesis.com slash tutor. Um, But it's fascinating. I invite everyone listening to this to try it out because you really feel like um, you are. Interacting with the human it's it's kind of crazy like the kids actually think that that it's a human behind the chat and behind the voice and they teach you in a way like kids are learning at a pace. That's like you know what kids would learn in three years in math in school. These kids are learning in a month, and it's just unreal. Because after they take all the like the like the little tests, you ask them a open ended question, or you know you give them a problem where they have to apply what they're learning, and they can actually do it. Which is one of my biggest frustrations as a teacher was that after the test, I gave them a problem. I was like, okay guys, so we learned about this. We're gonna. They did not know what to do, and I was like, you guys ace the test. How do you not know? They all forgot. That's not real learning here. The learning is sticking. And so I started to be like, okay, what is it that we're doing that's different? And what happens is that we are using, well, first of all, we the, the way that the tutor works is that we find an, expert in a field. In this case, we hired Dr. Tanton, who's like a Princeton PhD mathematics professor that has written a bunch of books. He's an amazing, He not only is he an expert in math and very passionate about his subject, he's also an excellent teacher. So he has that um, ability to really engage you and entertain you through stories and has the patience and the examples. And so we record him for hours and hours and hours and hours. And then the tutor you know, picks up on everything from Dr. Tanton. And so when you are learning math, it's, a you know, now every kid around the globe has access to learning math from Dr. Tanton. And we plan to do that with every subject. And so finally, you have a teacher that's like infinitely patient. I was telling you that when I was a teacher, you know, I would have loved to sit with, you know, little Rohit and stay with you until you understood before moving on. But I could not do that. I had other 29 kids that I had to attend. I had a curriculum I had to follow. So everything was like, let's move on. A lot of kids End up not learning the basics of math, for example, which are fundamental in order to develop a coherent picture of everything. And so here, no, the tutor stays with you as long as you need you know, and if you're a kid that picks it up really quickly, you don't get bored because the tutor knows that. So they move you on to the next level and you learn the next thing. And everything has an explanation. Everything makes like it's coherent. Kids know what they're learning, what they're learning, like the curriculum that we're putting together finally makes sense to me as a teacher in school. I was always like, why are we learning this now? Like, I don't see the connection here. It's like, wow, I understand. It sort of follows like the story of math. And I'm very passionate about this. So I could keep talking about it. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is I'm very excited about the possibility of having something like this cuz if we're able to condense the one-to-one tutoring which by the way we know that the best way to learn something is with a tutor one-on-one that's like how Aristotle and Alexander the Great and all this you know great minds would learn in the past if we're able to give that to students they would learn a lot faster, they can get the learning the hardcore academics out of the way quickly, and then have the rest of the day to be kids to learn about what they are interested in to build a business if they want to, you know, to go to sport to do whatever it is that they want to do. I feel like a lot of like kids are losing their childhood because they're stuck in school for so long. And then you know, the day ends, and then they have to school activities and homework. And when do they have a chance to be kids? When do they have a chance to be creative? And so I'm very optimistic about the possibility of this tutor um, to sort of bring back a lot of these things that that are crucial for for children. So just a sneak peek of what we're doing.
0: So, super interesting. I wish I could go to a Synthesis School. <laughs> uh, uh, and you know, I just uh, wanted to understand. You know, what made you write the learning game? You know, did you did you write it along with your full time job, or is it something that you you did it outside of uh, you know after you left uh, Synthesis?
1: No, no. So I'm still at Synthesis. Oh, so synthesis. I'm, I'm, I'm part of the founding group. So I'm, I'm always going to be at Synthesis. Okay. Um, and and my role actually is perfect for what I do because when they hired me or when they asked me to join, they were like, Anna, we just want you to keep doing what you're doing, which is elevating the category of alternative education, sharing with the world what the options are, why the school system is not the only option, and sometimes it's not the right option for every family. For some families, it is. But then, what are the alternatives? And sort of talk about what we're doing with the passion that I do, because I, I, you know, when I find something that I think is beneficial for kids and families and that I think is actually, you know, going to advance our mission, which is, you know, to push civilization forward and get kids to be successful, whatever it is that they want to be, then I want to support that. And so, um, That's sort of like everything that I do, everything that I write, everything that you know, all the podcasts that I go on my book, everything goes back to this idea of, you know, it ties to synthesis, because it's the best example I've seen so far of what the future of education could look like. And a lot of my ideas are implemented at synthesis. And that's what I love about it. So when again, I was writing this whole time that I was part of, you know, that I've been part of this company and right. all that writing. And, you know, I, I when I decided to write the book, what I did was I was like, OK, let me look at all the things I've written about, which are all my ideas around education. And how can I, you know, grab the best of them and compile it into a storyline and created the table of contents in, in a way that it makes sense for a book? And so really, it was a lot of, you know, and I can combine this write up with this write up and I can expand it into a chapter. And, you know, I can talk about, you know, I had one about failure and quitting. That could be a chapter I could. So I sort of like saw how I could have my different sections of the book and put it together. So, again, I wasn't writing a book from scratch that did anyway, took a year. Um, you know, uh, but again, it was in line with what I was doing on my day to day for synthesis. So everything sort of like comes together really nicely and um, and yeah, so so once I w- w- once I sort of decided on that, I, I expanded on the chapters and then I went through several rounds of editing and many people reading my book that I trust that gave me great feedback and then it ended up in the final product.
0: So, super interesting and you know what, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to uh, write a book i I've written a small book and i think i've got hundreds of edits and i was like i'm i'm done with writing a book i, I don't think i could ever be an author uh, but, but what advice would you give for them uh, because you know you you you're juggling a lot of things you you're a mother uh, you um, have a full time job and you also wrote a book um, i think uh, you're great at multitasking but uh, but any any advice on somebody who uh, was who, going to school or college or, um, you know, or or office and they want to you know write a short book?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So the the, the first thing I, I'm a big believer in the power of compounding. Okay. Again, I had said last year I want to write a book from scratch with right. all the things I had going on. I I I mean I probably would have done it, but not in a year. It would have taken me years to do it, yeah. but focus on doing a little bit every day and again it's really hard like it's easy for me to say because I'm I'm like looking back and I'm like this is what I did it's really hard when you are like getting started because you're like this is not going anywhere but remember that you know setting yourself like like setting a few whether it's 30 minutes or an hour or whatever it is you can do I don't know what what people's schedules are but of writing every day even if you don't know where this writing is going to take you, um, if this will be a chapter for your book or not, you don't even know what the book is, just sit down and do an uninterrupted writing for a set amount of time and then save it. You don't even have to publish it if you don't want to, although the publishing piece really does help. And I'll, and I'll talk about that in a second, but, but just getting in the habit. And even if that doesn't go anywhere, because again, I, I did this and a lot of the things that I write about Never went anywhere, but they did help me clarify my thinking, or they did make me realize, Anna, you don't know enough about this topic to write about it. You know, so whatever it is, you're going to learn something from that writing, or it's going to be therapeutic. So just like, you know, sitting down and just writing down whatever's on your mind, eventually, you will be able to grab and see what works. And just believe in the power of compounding. Don't give yourself, I mean, if you don't have the time, a goal like, okay, I want to finish this in three months. Just see where it takes you and see what happens after a year of you doing this every week. If you want to take it a step forward, Share that writing and give yourself a deadline every week. For example, for me, it was every Friday. I had to, you know, read during the week because reading is really what fueled my writing. Otherwise, I would have nothing to write about um, right. except for my experience. Um, and and then write something and ship it, whether it is on Twitter, whether whether it is a newsletter, whether whatever it is, you send it out because for me, the feedback was huge. You know, I would, I would know when people were like, Anna, this is not interesting because nobody would interact with my writing. I knew when something went viral, I was like, Ooh, there's something here. You know, people clearly want to really talk about, like learn about this or, or know about this. So I would be like, let me prioritize this. And so shipping for me was huge, but even if you are not ready yet, which I, I, I encourage you to eventually get there, but just get into the habit of writing, get into the habit of writing and then let it compound until it eventually becomes something. And remember that sometimes I think a lot of books should have been articles. So okay. you realize like, I have something really good, this really good idea, but it's not book worthy. Then don't stress about writing a book, you know, write an article, write a really good article that people are going to read and, 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 and extract value from it. So like not push it to become a book. You know what I mean? Uh, so- that's
0: yeah. that's interesting you you mentioned about you know, writing articles. i'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of David Perll as well as Dickie bush who who love to write you know five thousand or ten thousand words and and they and they both you know love to walk. Uh, do you think walking and stepping away from the computer helps you generate more ideas or do you think you know uh, that is something which it depends on on a or to writer basis?
1: Um am um, sorry what was the question that um if you have to step away from the computer sometimes
0: yes to step away from the computer making notes walking do you think d- these things really matter
1: oh my gosh if you ask david all this question about me he would start cracking up because i could not sit down and write in front of a computer i you know i love to talk and that's how i um really you know get my ideas out and and so i love otter i don't know if you know the this yeah, app he he introduced me to this app and I just walk. I have this idea instead of writing it down, I will talk about it and then that transcribes it and then I'll look at it and I'm like, oh, this idea is great. This idea is great. This should be a tweet. This is going to be the, my next prompt for my next writing. And so um, I need to be active. I need and, and he, re, David was the one who made me realize this. He's like, stop torturing yourself. You hate sitting down. You're so active. Why don't you go on a walk and start talking to your phone? And I was like, okay, That changed my life. The other thing is sometimes I need to like write idea on sticky notes and then put them on the floor and then sort of like look at them from this angle and this, like I'm very, you know, visual in that sense. And so absolutely, if you're stuck, like just step out, like, you know, like don't, don't, you know, but everyone's different. Some people like my husband, for example, he's amazing at just sitting down and he can like sit there and write for two hours. I I can't do that Um, unless I have like a bunch of ideas already. And I'm like, I know exactly what I'm writing about. I'm ready. Then I sit down and I'm like, but before that, I need to be active. So yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Shout shout out to David because he introduced me to Otter and and, and I, I and I use it for uh, for recording my demos because you know uh, I do partnerships and business development. But um, but in, in in your book, you know, you, you also talk about you know how how kids can take risks and be allowed to fail. And I think uh, I, 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 there, there was a very popular story about Richard Branson who was very young and his and his parents would allow him to. Uh, to do things on his own even when he was 5 years old go for go and you know uh, take a bus ride uh, and I, I found it fascinating but how do you how do you you know uh, teach kids to take a uh, risk and you know raise them to be successful kids that is what most of the parents are looking for
1: yeah so i don't think there's a, like a right answer for this but a lot we've talked about um already which is this um idea of giving them giving them the the, the space to fail right. Um, in 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 a way where they're not going to get punished right and where, where there's an, an adult around and it's not like catastrophic failure, obviously, Um, giving them space to figure things out for for themselves. And so but in addition to that, it's funny because when you talk to parents all the parents want for their kids to be independent and for them to take risks and take on challenges but then they're very hesitant to give them independence and to let them take on challenges and to let them take risks. We, um, and I talk about this in my book, I have a chapter called anti-fragility, you know, like raising anti-fragile kids, which talks about how, you know, we live in a world where parents, you know, uh, that kids are very risk averse and they are scared of trying things out and all this, and and I think a lot of it has to do with us parents and, and the opportunities that we always want to intervene when we see that they're like doing something that it's, you know, slightly dangerous, but not really, you know, and so I, I, I encourage parents to actually let their kids try things that are a little bit dangerous but in a careful in a careful way right like if they go to this park and they're trying the high monkey bars and let them try that challenging thing and let them work you know a lot of parents want to just intervene and and so and and We also have this tendency to like jump in and want to solve all the problems for kids. We don't want to see them suffer. We don't want to see them, you know, sad. But the reality is that sad and suffering and challenges, this is all part of the real world. So the earlier we expose kids to these things it's just like germs right like the earlier you expose kids to germs the faster they're going to build their immune system well it's the same the same thing with risks and challenges and you know and stress and and everything so obviously you're not going to put them in a super stressful situation but you can expose them to moderate stress moderate challenges and resist the urge of intervening of course it's very hard because we again don't want to see kids suffer but if you understand that actually by doing that you are actually building their stronger selves as adults, then then parents are more inclined to give them those those opportunities. So I guess what I'm saying is, um, find risky things for your kids to do and actually encourage them right and a lot of parents think that teachers do this in school but unfortunately you know that's that's not one of no that's not happening and and it's not the norm and so just take it upon yourself and and to to encourage your kids to take risk and encourage your kids and then guide them and then model that behavior yourself as well um when they see you taking on that harder challenge or taking that risk and and seeing how you, then they learn so much from that. And so modeling that and you finding the opportunities to put your kids in certain situations where they can face this and not intervening.
0: Hmm. And um, uh, you know, Warren Buffet once said that uh, if you want to increase fifty percent of your net worth, you need to hone your communication skills, which is both written and verbal. Uh, and I'm 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 learning a little too late. But how can how can kids learn to write better? What advice? Or do you think they can they can start early and write better? Not not from what they learn from schools and college, but uh, from uh, Anna's way of you know writing.
1: No, absolutely. So I think I I am now convinced that writing is one of the most important skills that, that people need to be you know, good at anything and for any career. And if you wanna be, if you wanna excel and sort of like differentiate yourself from others, like become a great writer. You know, nice. that translate into great speakers, right? Um, that helps you think clearly. Like I've mentioned already, that helps you sort of like understand what you know and what you don't know. It helps you learn better. Like writing to me is just like fundamental and it's become even more and more important with the year, you know, in the past years, I've realized the power of writing and where writing well can take you. And so I, I I had this idea with David at one point, just it, it didn't go anywhere for several reasons. Like we need to start like a summer camp for writing for kids with all these things that you're teaching in your course to teach them for modern times. It was not the right time. We both realized we did not like the operational side of running a business. But anyway, somebody needs to do this. But in, in general, what parents can do is, well, the first problem that I detect in school that makes kids hate writing is that their writing doesn't go anywhere. So Teachers usually, and again, not always, sometimes everyone has a different prompt, but will usually give you a prompt that kids are not interested in, you know, like they're not invested. You need to, to be, you need to want to write about this one, two, you need to want know that your writing is going to have some sort of impact, not it's going to go into your report card file that, or in your fridge that then will go in a file and never see it again. No, no. I mean, like, think about, you know, come up with an activity for your kid to, to use writing and then. Have that writing go somewhere and and have an impact on something and and try to change something. Right, the internet is amazing for this. Um, kids can you know develop the writing habit and see and 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 see where they can take their writing and where they can send their writing and the blogs and YouTube and a bunch of things. And so, um, I, I think that I have a whole article about this actually of like things kids can do with their writing online. Um, and then also help them understand. So give them these opportunities to write and and take their writing somewhere, but also. Um, Give them the free like kids need a lot of autonomy in writing forget about and I tell parents have a really hard time understanding this but forget about the grammar forget about the mechanics forget about you know the like centers like sentence structure like no focus on the ideas. The most important thing is the ideas and kids are filled with ideas. The problem is that when they come with an idea in school and they want to write about it, we're like, "Okay, focus on the grammar. You're going to lose points if you don't have the right punctuation and the sentence. And then we focus on all this like, you know, fluffy stuff that really comes later. If we focused on developing the idea and then you trust that eventually they're going to pick up on the grammar or the computer is going to pick up on their spelling checks, you know, like what matters is their ideas and for them to execute on those ideas and elaborate them and the creative component of the writing so if parents can help kids focus on that and not worry about the other stuff, then that really encourages and becomes motivating for kids and they want to do it. Um, And and so those are like two things, but then also helping them understand how writing is behind everything, right. you know, um, like, for me, when people ask me, like, how do you do so many things? I'm like, well, I, I it all starts with a piece of writing. And then from that, I grab tweets from that I'll do Instagram posts from that I'll go on a podcast and talk about this eloquently from that I'll do a keynote speaking from that I'll do a video for YouTube, it all comes from an article or writing, you know, piece of writing. And so when kids start to understand that, then they're even more excited to get to write um, hmm. and then yeah, yeah. So those are some of the things that come to mind and you can start this when they're very young.
0: So, super interesting and, um, you know, and, uh, and I quickly want to do the top three. What's a favorite business book?
1: My favorite business book. So uh, I really like um, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Yeah. And I think it's because he, he challenges, like it's a book that really challenges like conventional business wisdom and encourages you to, well, at least in my sense, to sort of like rethink um, the fundamental principles of entrepreneurship and technology um, in a way, you know, I, I love books that are sort of like contrarian and that offer like a controversial point of view. And, and you know, so I feel like it it, it made me see um, how to start, a, you know, a business differently. Um, so I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, I'd say that one.
0: Got it. And, and you know, if you could go back in time when you started writing the learning game, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently?
1: Ooh, when I started writing the learning game. Um so I guess I guess I spent a lot of months trying to fit in all my writing into the book. Um, and then until I finally realized, I was like, wait, what am I doing? Why am I trying to fit? You know, I don't need to include, me- like, I, I think I went from having one problem, which was not knowing what to write about to having then the problem where I had too much and I, and I wanted to include it all and I didn't have to include it all. So I guess I would have, um, yeah, I, I would have realized earlier somehow that I, I, I didn't have to force all my writing into my table of contents. I could just sort of like start a storyline with some of, of the the articles that I had written, and then go from there. I think that would have saved me months of headaches and work.
0: Oh, okay, got it, got it. And uh, do you have any favorite online tools? Example: Gmail, um, Slack, Zoom.
1: Um, my favorite e- e- email, Slack, or Zoom. Uh,
0: sorry, uh, favorite online tools. Example: Gmail, Slack, Zoom. Uh, those those are um, tools.
1: Ooh, okay. So, um. So I'm I'm obsessed with superhuman. I don't know if, um, if that counts, but um, yes. at the beginning I was like, why would I get? And now I'm like, I don't I I don't see myself using Gmail ever again. It just it has just you know facilitated my life. <laughs> so so yeah, superhuman.
0: Got it. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes and um, uh, Anna, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about your book, The Learning Game?
1: Yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Anna Fabrega Eleven or my Instagram account, which is Ms. Fab underscore. Um, no, no, sorry. I, I it's. Um, oh, my gosh, I'm blanking right now. Jordy, do you want to help me? <laughs> um, oh, Ms. Fab underscore learning lab. Yep. Okay, there you go. Um, and you can also subscribe to my newsletter, which has been a little bit inactive this year because I decided to take a step back and, and be a mom, but I'm coming back. Um, so that's called Fab Fridays and you can find it on my website, afabrega.com. And yeah, so just tapping on that learning game, which is the title of my book tab and seeing what the book is about.
0: Got it. We'll, we'll put down in the show notes. Anna, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you.
1: Likewise. Thank you so much for having me.